Good morning, Grace. If you would, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33 is where we will be this morning. And you have some notes in your bulletin if you want to follow along with where I hope to make progress on this morning. You can see I put a title on this, A God Who Acts Consistent with His Character and with Grace Beyond Our Comprehension. I hope that we see in this passage today that God is who He is, and He's going to be consistent with who He is, but He's going to blow our minds with the way that He relates to us and to this world in which we live. So Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. I know you probably think I'm gloating with my tie on this morning. But I had a difficult time finding a tie that would match my white shirt. <laughs> and this is the best I could do. Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. As we come into this passage right here, remember Kenny even opened up our service today talking about where we ended before Advent. And we were over in chapter 18 and verse 14. And with these words, is anything too hard for the Lord? And so we worked our way through that story. That led us into our time of Advent. And we considered that, that, those words right there in various ways, different weeks of Advent. And so now we come up to the different part of this chapter, verse 16 and following. There we learned that God is able to do as He pleases. He, he can. There, there's nothing that's too difficult for the Lord. As we come into our passage this morning, the question is, well, if God can do whatever he chooses, is it fair? Now, this is a question that maybe we've asked at various times in our lives. Maybe we've struggled with the question, is God just, or even put it differently, is God fair? Or maybe that doesn't even resonate with you. Maybe you think, well, I've never really thought about whether God's fair or just. I just accept it. But maybe there are times in your life where you've questioned or wondered about why God works in certain ways in your life, but not in other ways. And you've had questions about that. Maybe you've poured out prayers to the Lord about that. Maybe we've had questions as we've gone through time about why do child abusers, why are they able to have children? And maybe you're a potentially loving parent and yet you face infertility. We think about that tree we're going to be planting next week, the memorial tree, and why is it that some are able to get pregnant and carry the baby full term and hold that baby in their arms and others experience the pain of miscarriage? Why is it that that person, creep that they are, were able to get married and you are pursuing the Lord and you find yourself lonely, longing for a mate? Why is it that the tornado is formed in that cloud over that state, comes down in that neighborhood, and hits that house? Why is it that some people are old and they're enabled to live and they live in rebellion and yet someone godly living for the Lord dies prematurely? Why is that? Why, why do we face these kind of things? In our passage today, Abraham has a concern about whether God is fair or not. He wants to ask the question of God, who's going to pour out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. 
God, are you really going to do that? Pour out your wrath on the entirety of those two cities when there are righteous people in there? And the answer to this question, I think, is important for all of us to understand. And so we're going to work our way through this passage. Let me read, pray, and then we'll work our way through it. And then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him? For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray. Lord, we just sang the words of those songs, speak to us. And that's our simple prayer right now, speak to us. Help your word to be alive and powerful and to work its way into our heart, into our lives. Lord, transform our thinking. Help us to put to death sins in our life, to bring to life righteousness. Lord, we all come into this room and our minds are in different places, our lives are in different places, but there's one thing that holds us in common. We need you to speak to us. And so we pray that you would and use the words of this passage and use my words to draw us into a deeper relationship with you. We give this time to you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to do two things this morning. The first thing I want us to do is think about what is the point of this particular story. 
this, uh, Caleb, this is just, it's not, something is wrong still. Not doing it. I'm doing everything. I, there we go right there. See, now, now something just happened. There we go. Let's go. All right. Am I in control now? All right, perfect. Just wanted to make sure who's in control here. I got this. I want us to do two things this morning. We're going to look at what is the point of this story, and then I want us to consider, well, what does it mean for us? And so as we look at what is the point of this story, I want us to consider three aspects from this text. First of all, I want us to do an, a God's assessment of Abraham, righteous living. And then we're going to see God's assessment of Sodom and Gomorrah, rebellious living. And then we're going to see Abraham's assessment of God. He's going to question his justice when we come to the end of this passage. So those three ideas is what we want to look at. In this particular first part of the passage, looking at verses 16 through 19 especially, verses 17 through 19, we see that the Lord is giving every indication. Those two words, righteous living, are what describe Abraham. He is living the life that he's been created to live, recreated to live, that his life of faith is causing him to live. God says, I've chosen him. He's going to be a blessing to the nation. And with this comes the responsibility of passing on this relationship with God. I love the way we see discipleship right here in this passage. When you look at verse 18, I think it is seen that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. All the nations there shall be blessed in him. Verse 19, for I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him. That's discipleship. Disciples, discipling disciples. Why? To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And so he, he is committed to this. This has been entrusted to him. And so we see two aspects in this verse that I, I want us to understand. I'm going to try to simplify them as much as I can. But the first aspect that we see is doing righteousness. That, that's what Abraham is doing, and that is what he is to pass on to his household and then the generation after him. He is doing righteousness. And basically, this is right living. I think we're a little afraid of the word righteousness sometimes, that this has some idea of perfection. And we know that it doesn't. There's nothing that we're just saying. We come with empty hands to the Lord. When Abraham comes to the Lord, he's empty-handed. There's nothing he can do to earn favor with him. He falls short just like we fall short. We've already seen back in chapter 15 in verse 6, how is it that Abraham entered into a relationship with God? By doing good deeds? No. Chapter 15, verse 6, he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Old and New Testament, there's only one way to ever enter into relationship with God and that is by faith. But James tells us very clearly, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without your works. And so what we see here is the evidence of Abraham's faith, and that is doing righteousness. It's loving God with all the heart, soul, might, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. That's how Jesus summarizes that in the New Testament. When you come into a relationship with God, it is to have a marked um, result in your life. Loving God, loving others. And so doing righteousness is living in relationship with others and loving them, which I would define as doing for others whatever is in their best interest, no matter what, in other words, no matter what it might cost you, for the glory of God. And so this is the way Abraham's living his life. It's Micah 6, 8 living. He has shown you, old man, 
what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to love justice, but to love justice um, and then something mercy and then walk humbly with your God. You're tracking with me. That's what's really important here. It's Micah 6, 8, living. Look it up. You can find it. It is the way we were created to live, even redeemed to live in our lives. This is the work that God is doing in us. We don't use the word righteousness too much today. We might use the word Christ-likeness, that we are to live like Christ. We are in Christ. We are to live like Christ. And so that's what's going on here with Abraham. But don't forget, in both Testaments, the only way you enter into relationship with God is through faith. And so Abraham now has his faith, and because of that faith, his lifestyle is evidencing doing righteousness, and because this matters to him, he's passing it on to others. That's the way he's living his life. But then secondly, he is also doing justice. And what justice is, think about righteousness. If we were all living righteously together, there would be no injustice. But because there is injustice, justice is making right wrong living. Because not everyone is living righteously, justice is necessary. And so the wrongs that are committed in society, it's making them right. In other words, the one is so for right living that when he bumps up against wrong living, he's going to do something about it. Either correcting it in that person or those who are being oppressed or those who are the ones who are on the other side of that injustice caring for them. And so you've got righteousness and you've got justice in this particular passage. And we might also want to note, if righteousness was prevalent in the world, in other words, if we were all living righteously, it would render justice unnecessary. There would be no the correction of wrong living. There would be no coming alongside of those who were on the other end of injustice. And so Abraham is living this way, faith. And now it's, it's evidence in his life, doing righteousness, doing justice. So when we think about Abraham, just pull back from the story, God's assessment of him is righteous living. He's living the way God intends for his creation to live, by faith and then living towards others in a way that's righteous and just. God is pleased with him. His blessing is on him. But then we also see the assessment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if we were to put two words there, it would be rebellious living. It's clear as we come into this, God gives every indication that Sodom and Gomorrah is lacking in everything that actually is evident in Abraham's life. They are the opposite of this, actually. So if we think about it this way, if what we see in Abraham's life is faith, living righteously, and living justly, the assessment of Sodom and Gomorrah is no faith, no living righteously, no living justly. And so that's the big picture that we get with them. They're guilty. And as such, because they oppose God, there are going to be consequences for their sin. Abraham is not questioning whether or not sin deserves judgment. That's not a question of his. His question is, are you really going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? The wicked have what's coming to them. There is no faith, there is no righteousness, there is no justice there. And when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah and we think about what an ugly place that was, oftentimes we look at Sodom and Gomorrah in light of what we see in chapter 19, the sexual perversion that is there in that particular 
um, city, those particular cities. But really the word outcry becomes um, an important word for us to grasp. This word outcry is found throughout the Old Testament and is used to describe the cries of the oppressed or the brutalized. Think about very beginning, Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, Cain kills Abel and the Lord comes to Cain and says, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. Cain had brutalized him, murdered him, destroyed him. And God says, his blood is crying out to me. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, 25, it's at that time where in chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus, we see how the Egyptians are oppressing Israelites, throwing their babies in the Nile, giving them unnecessarily rigorous labor that they're doing. And in verse 23, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. Another example in Deuteronomy chapter 24 in verse 15. I think it really gives it to us clearly there as well. Um, Chapter 24, verse 15. Let me begin in verse 14. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are with you in one of your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. Why? For he's poor and he counts on it. Don't withhold his wages from him, lest he cry out to you, out, out against you to the Lord. And so when we think about this outcry that's going on here, this is the word that really describes what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Not just sexual perversions, but they've got all of this brutality that's taking place. Listen to what um, Hamilton says in his commentary. He says, he puts it this way, the miserable wail of the oppressed and brutalized. In other words, this is not a soft word. This is a strong word. uh, Sarna brings this out even more for us when he says, they connote the anguished cry of the oppressed, the agonized plea of the victim for help in, in the face of some great injustice. In the Bible, these terms are suffused with poignancy and pathos, with moral outrage and soul stirring passion. These are strong words. Their outcry has come up to me. And that's what stands behind this. And so Sarna concludes with this right here. The sin of Sodom then is heinous moral and social corruption, an arrogant disregard of basic human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the suffering of others. Not just insensitivity, cynical insensitivity. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, it says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. This was it. Let me summarize it. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty haughty and committed abominations before me. That's the summary of Sodom, their outcry. And so when we think about Abraham's life, righteous living, Sodom and Gomorrah, the complete opposite of that. 
complete disregard for humanity. And their cry is going up to God and God's now going to come down and he's going to visit to see if it's true. Now, now the, the, the text doesn't give us all that. And then God concluded, but we're going to see his conclusion in chapter 19. It's going to be very clear. It's at this point that we have Abraham's assessment of God, questioning his justice. God lets him in on the story. This is his promised one. This is his chosen one. This is the one he's he's banking on to take his message to the world. And so God lets him in on this. And Abraham struggles with that. Again, Abraham's struggle is not with God's justice. It's not with God's, the application of God's justice to the wicked. It's the fact that the righteous will be involved in that. How in the world can God pour out his justice on the righteous as well. Now, let's think big story again. Abraham has a nephew, Lot, and Lot lives there as well. So Abraham's concern actually has a face to it. It's not just perhaps, maybe, possibly there is a righteous person there. My nephew Lot is there. And are you really? Are you really going to pour your wrath on everybody? Now, Lot gets a bad rap when we go through the book of Genesis and we talk about, well, he went to Sodom. It shows his character, what a pathetic individual he is. And, and maybe there are some things that we can pull out of that story. But Second Peter has a very different way of looking at Lot and gives us a summary statement that I think we really ought to think about. This is what Second Peter says. And if he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That's how Second Peter chapter 2 describes Lot. He was a righteous man. So this face that Abraham has to what's going to happen in Sodom Gomorrah, his nephew Lot He's a righteous person. And so there's a dilemma. Yeah, God can do whatever he chooses to do. There's nothing too difficult for him. He's just in pouring out his wrath on the the wicked. But is he fair? Is he just to pour out that on the righteous as well? And so Abraham goes for it here. He, He just bullies. He says he draws near to God and he just goes for it. Now, What's interesting about Abraham, he doesn't have this posture of, let me tell you a few things, God, a few things maybe you haven't thought of. No, that's not Abraham's posture. Abraham's posture is deferring to who God is. I'm always amazed when I read these early chapters of Genesis at what a well-developed theology these individuals seem to have. He knows something about God, but he's got some questions here. And it's interesting how God is so gentle with him through the whole story as well. What about there's 50? Maybe 45. What if there's 40? 35? 30? He goes all the way down to 10. Now, why does Abraham stop at 10? Why doesn't he say, well, Lord, what if it's only Lot? Isn't that where you expect Abraham to go? God, what if only Lot is there? You're going to sweep him away with the wicked as well. But he stops at 10. Why is that? Because I think Abraham has learned that God will discriminate in his own way between the wicked and the righteous. God's got this. He is to be trusted. 
Abraham is seen, even though God is going to act consistent with his character, he's also going to exercise a grace that's beyond his imagination. God, you've got this. And I'm so thankful to be able to preach through a passage like this because one of the first things I have to do every semester when I get these freshmen, wide-eyed students in my classes at Biola is rip out of their minds this notion that the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. And I like that God. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment. I don't like that God. I want to dispel that right away. And I want to dispel it in this church as well. That is not true. Here in this passage right here, you see God's first move is always gracious. Always gracious. But he's also just. And sin has to be dealt with. And so Abraham is learning that. I mean, if we just had time to listen to God's heart throughout the Old Testament, I really wish I I, I could camp here for a couple of weeks to do this. But Nehemiah chapter 9 Nehemiah 9 is an amazing summary of the Old Testament. It's an amazing summary of the Old Testament. And you see in these two columns, the column on the left, you see example after example. And Israel walked away. They rebelled. They turned their backs on God. And in the right-hand column, you see constantly, but God was compassionate. But God was gracious to them. And what did they do in light of that? They walked away and they were rebellious and they acted wickedly. And then God was compassionate. And he was gracious. It's a complete summary of the whole Old Testament where God constantly just moves towards his people. He's so gracious and compassionate. I mean, we've got other verses that we can look at. I mean, Psalm 103, he knows our frame. He knows that we're but dust. Oh, he's so gracious to us. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Oh, thanks be to God for that. If that isn't sir worship in your heart, I don't know what will. And we've got other passages we can look at Isaiah 30, oh, Ezekiel 33, 11. It says the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of wicked ones. No pleasure in the death of wicked ones. He's an amazingly good God. Hosea, oh, Ephraim. And God just is crying out to them. It's amazing. And we could even go to 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise. He's patient. And why is that? Because he's not willing that any, underline that in your Bibles, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's the heart of God. And Abraham says, God, 50? Well, how about 10? And he walks away satisfied. You are a good God. You are a gracious God. What does this story mean to us? I always like to, to spend time talking about what it means for Israel first and then go to what it means for us. But just for the sake of time right now, let's just go straight to, let's just blend all this together. There's three truths. And I've got the word justly in each one of them because I want us to see that God is consistent with his character. But he's going to blow our minds with his grace. God is justly just. God is justly merciful, and God is justly patient in that process as well. Let's think about each one of these. God is justly just. As we think about this, we've got to come full face-to-face with the fact that all those who oppose God and live in rebellion to him 
and reject his first step, which is always mercy, always grace, and they reject that, they are under his judgment. And they will receive the outpouring of his wrath, and it is just. It is just that God will act that way. We've got to come face to face with that. And for some of us, what this means is maybe you've never come to a place in your life where you have received God's gracious gift. As we were singing earlier, we bring nothing in our hands. We have nothing to give to the Lord. We have only to receive, and it's to receive His gracious gifts. And if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, put your faith in Him and Him alone. No good deeds, no nothing, just in Him. If you have never done that, the Bible is clear. That is the only way of salvation. That is the only way to be in relationship with God. And if you have never done that, you too will face the outpouring of his wrath. You will. That's the truth of God's word. And God's not willing that you should perish. But if you so choose to reject him, you will. But what do we do with this passage as we're believers? This passage is also a reminder of believers. I want us to focus in on that word outcry for just a little bit. Because I walk with people in this church. I walk with believers here at Biola around the world. I hear people's stories. I know what's going on behind the scenes of the happy faces eating donuts and drinking coffee. I know what's behind the greetings. And it's very possible that in this room today, in our homes, just stop and think about it. In our homes there is an outcry going up because in that home, there isn't Christ-likeness. And there's a spouse who goes to bed at night crying, begging God to do something. And that cry goes up to God and God hears. God hears that cry. And there's a husband who's so beat down by his wife, he just begs God begs God for a change and he keeps on walking into it just being beaten down and maybe there's a kid whose mom and dad have lost their way and don't know how to love and they think it's normal to be beaten to be verbally abused maybe it's siblings who aren't expressing righteousness and they pick on each other they bully each other they say mean things to each other, and that cry goes up to the Lord. And he hears. And if you are in Christ, you will escape his condemnation. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. But that outcry will go up, and your heavenly Father will hear, and he will discipline. Let's don't pretend that there's not an outcry in our midst. Maybe even right now, someone is just crying out to the Lord. And if you are the one who yours, your life is impacting others in such a way that an outcry is going up, let this day be the day that you repent. That God breaks down your heart and you walk away from that, you repent of that, you put it to death, you beg others to come alongside of you so that you can live righteously and justly. Beware. God is a God who hears the outcry of his people. 
Secondly, we see that God is justly merciful. That's why we run to him. Even if that characterizes our life, it is possible to escape the wrath of God. Can I hear an amen to that? It is possible to escape the wrath of God, but it's only by putting your trust and your faith in him. It's faith. It's faith that's not dead. It's faith that's alive. It's faith that is evidenced by righteous living and just living. It's faith that is evidenced by loving God with all your heart, soul, might, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. It's that kind of life. Because of the mercy of God, because of that faith, God is able to be merciful to us. But when we step back and look at the big picture, Kenny's going to be taking us into chapter 19 next week. And we're going to find out Abraham stops at 10. And when God goes down, he doesn't find 10. And in his bargain with Abraham, because he didn't find 10, there's an agreement, even by Abraham, wipe them all out. But there's four that God's going to rescue. And this is what I want us to see. Even before we get in chapter 19, God goes above and beyond what Abraham asked for. Lord, how about if there's just 10? What if there's just 10? God doesn't let him in on his plan, but what God does is, if there's only four, I'm going to grab them out of that city and I'm going to rescue those who belong to me. He's justly merciful to us. And as we think about his just mercy to us, we recognize that God exercises beyond comprehension grace when he rescues the four righteous people from the cities. It's amazing grace that God pours out. It's, it's interesting. In chapter 19, verse 16, it says, they hesitated and God seizes them. I got a feeling we got some testimonies in here today where your heart was moving towards sin your feet were walking towards sin and you lingered and you hesitated and God in his mercy snatched you out. We got some testimonies in here on that. Left to yourself, you would have perished in Sodom and Gomorrah and God rescued you. He pulled you right out of that. God is also justly patient. He gives people time one of the most amazing things in the Bible. What does God say in Genesis chapter 2 to Adam and Eve? In the day you eat of that fruit, of that tree, you will surely die. What do we do with that? Well, what we've done with that throughout the years, because they didn't die, we try to explain, well, they died spiritually and they were allowed to live physically. No, it says they will die. There's no spiritual death there. They will physically die. But God does something. He gives them animal skins. Blood is shed. They're allowed to live on. God is patient with people. He's given them an opportunity to respond. And, and throughout our world, people can shake their fist at God. God will not be mocked. He's sitting back. He's being patient. He's giving them time. 
And like Abraham, we've been brought into the plan of God. We understand the beginning from the end. We understand what Abraham believed simply by looking in faith. He didn't know the name Jesus. He didn't understand the gospel message. He didn't get all that stuff. He just put his faith in God. We stand here. We understand the entire plan of salvation. We understand Jesus is the way. We understand that a a lost and dying world has one hope and one hope alone, and that is in Jesus. And that's it. There's no other hope. We've been blessed to receive this good news. If we are in Christ today, we have escaped the condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. But there are many out there who have not responded. And God is exercising great patience. Exercising great patience to them. We will escape this wrath. We'll escape it because of the gift of Jesus, but we must proclaim this message. What happens in Sodom and Gomorrah is just a small picture of what's still going to happen one day, except for the entire world. The righteous will be seized out, and then God will pour out his wrath. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, makes the wrath of God vivid when he says this, the wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them and the pit hath opened his mouth under them. For your loved ones, for your neighbors, for your co-workers, who have not bowed the knee to Jesus, this is true for them. And they need the good news of Jesus. We have a story to tell to the nations. We must be the ones who complete the Great Commission. In chapter 3, verse 10 of 2 Peter, it says in verse 9, God is patient, not willing that it should perish. But then in chapter 10 it says, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief in the night when you do not expect it. This past week marked the 61st anniversary of Jim Elliot's death. He took the gospel to the Alka Indians and he and his fellow missionaries died on the shores just so they could hear about Jesus. And his widow wrote these words right here. We want to avoid suffering, death, sin, ashes, But we live in a world crushed and broken and torn. A world himself that God visited himself to redeem. We receive his poured out life and being allowed the high privilege of suffering with him may then pour ourselves out for others. Is that your passion? What you've received to pour out to others And so once again, we get to our mission is to proclaim a church where each member urgently, eagerly, and bountifully proclaims Christ at home and supports gospel advancement throughout the world. That's who we are as a people. We are to proclaim this message. And so once again, we got to realize the Great Commission is not optional. Disciples of Jesus, disciple. That's what we do. We invite others into a deeper relationship with him. 
And so if we step back from the story, God is justly just. He's justly merciful. He's justly patient. And we all have a responsibility. Our first responsibility is if you are living a life that is causing an outcry in someone else, you need to turn away from that today. If you are one who is in Christ and you've been given that good news and that good news has transformed you, you need to be one who shares that with others. They need to hear. What happens to Sodom and Gomorrah awaits them as well. So let's all stand in light of this. I don't know what the Lord is stirring in your heart right now. Maybe it's sin you need to confess. Maybe it's you need to be emboldened to share the gospel. But what we're going to do is this. We're going to put our hands on the shoulders of the person next to us. Everybody around the room, put your hands on the shoulders of the person next to you. And I want you to, just in the quietness of your heart, I want you to pray for them. If there's an outcry in that home, beg God to work. But let's all commission ourselves to take the message of the good news of Jesus to those who need to hear. Pray for those around you, the ones you're touching. Just pray for them as I pray. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us? We've come face to face in this passage with some sobering truths. Lord, you want us. You want all of us. And you want all of this world. And so, Lord, help us to be people who live righteously and justly and help us to be people who proclaim the good news. And, Lord, if there's someone in here who is crying out this morning, would you bring them comfort? And rescue them. Lord, we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.